Welcome to the first episode of VSML 2014 Recaps from Reality TV Warriors. My name is Michael Harmstone and joining me as always is the Canadian who is just getting this season out of the way because he's described it as like pulling a tooth or waxing his bikini line, Logan Saunders. Good afternoon. And making his glorious return after we didn't let him on Japan is the guy whose shoe size we don't even know, David Bindley. They're big. Well, you know what they say about big food. Big socks. Exactly. Are you a similar height to me and Logan? Or no. are you small? I can't remember. No, no I'm you're not. About 5'7". Ah, yeah. So you are tiny then. So I would come uh, just about up to your armpit. Yeah, you're practically Michelle height. Yeah. <laughs> Which is 5'4", I think. Oh, no. I'm much bigger than that. And the first caveat I have to give with this season is, this season, as with Oregon, Logan hasn't seen before, so there'll be no what did the Moldu section at the end of the podcast. And new to this season, I'm not going to reveal who I suspected at the time, because Logan will get influenced by my suspicion, because he knows I was onto the mole reasonably quickly. The plus side is, Bindles does know who I suspect, and he also knows who Logan suspected this week, as do I. Which is fun. Yeah, real fun for week one. Yeah, real fun for week one, and basically Logan's going to give his suspicions at the end of this episode, and it's going to be like, okay, interesting, I'll note that down. And then at the end of the season, I'll reveal actually who I suspected each week. I will say, I didn't get them all week one. They were not my number one pick in week one. Oh, that's amateur hour. You do actually have a chance to beat me this season. Okay. Albeit a reasonably small one. So I should just watch the final episode, pretend I haven't seen it, and then base my suspicions off of that starting with week two. Yeah, that would be cheating, and you know it, and I'll call you on your bullshit next time if you do that. That's basically what we all did with the last Australian season, because I think... About halfway through, one of the editors leaked like the second last episode, so we knew who the final three were, and then we knew basically two of them. You could tell they weren't the mole, so everyone just sort of focused on the third one. We don't invoke that season on this podcast because at some point someone's going to do that Patreon tier and make us record it, and I don't want that to happen. <laughs> it's the punishment for someone spending that much money on us is making us watch Mole Australia 6. I'm expecting Channel 10 to eventually do a Mole Australia 7 at this rate. Oh, of course they're going to do that at some point. Yeah, they've got Traders coming up at the end of the year. Yeah, which, given what I know about the original version of Traders, I'm not as I'm not as downcast on it as I am about Hunted Australia, which, by the time of this recording, has not started airing yet, but every sign points to it being awful. And I can say that because, at this point, we may have already covered it on the podcast, and I may have been incredibly buoyant on it, having watched it, but not pre-season. So Traders, I assume, is going to be a show with four uh, two-hour episodes per week that runs for four weeks? Yeah, something like that. It's definitely going to have a ludicrous schedule. So back to this season, anyway. They didn't really say much about the season's twists pre-season. I did send Logan the press conference to watch, which is how I... I was first onto uh, onto my mole. But they, they didn't even say the Philippines was going to be a thing. Art kind of sneakily references it in his intro in the season, saying, oh, they're not going to stay in Hong Kong. But unless you recognise El Nido in the, uh, in the opening scene, you don't actually know Philippines is coming, I don't think. Yeah, El Nido's very distinct if you've been there before. But otherwise, yeah, if, you, if you're not even paying attention to that, to that initial scene... You're not going to pick up on Art's very, very subtle hints that they're not going to be in Hong Kong the whole time. You're going to be, you're going to be thinking, oh, maybe they go to Macau for a few episodes. And the wonderful, slightly rare thing in Vidum terms is they haven't explained what the the opening scene of this episode actually was yet. That comes next week, so I don't actually think you necessarily know what the postman thing is about yet. No, I have no idea about the mail or the mailbox. I assume it might have to do with those hundred euro notes that they were handed later on in this episode. But other than that, I haven't made any major connection. Excellent. I won't say anything. Then you can you can have that as a nice surprise for next week. I, I will say I kind of wish they didn't have that little scene at the start because I think next week the way they set it up sort of makes you think they're going somewhere completely different. And I, I sort of wish they hadn't had this scene, because then that would have made the Philippines even more of a shock when it happened. Yeah, the the thing I'll say about this season is we picked it because it's a very fun season, and also because I was very much onto them all quickly, and I needed a season to redeem myself after this year. But it's quite stuffed with twists this season. 
because you have the black exemption, you have the initial red screen, you have the whole Philippines thing that is one of the biggest twists they've ever done. It's very overcomplicated to start off the season. All of this comes in the first two episodes. I like just that shock and over-explaining about the black exemption, and then you fast-forward eight years later, and it's a twist that anyone who watches Vidim is very familiar with now. Yeah, the black exemption was a huge twist at the time, because it changes the game structurally. I know we've mentioned this on previous podcasts, but introducing the black exemption means that they can't anymore only hand out an exemption for that next test. They have to have conditions assigned to those exemptions immediately or just make every exemption be an open one until final five yeah they're almost changing it into hidden immunity idols essentially yeah yeah this is we say we said a lot in the japan coverage that it is very much a transient season this is also very much a transient season because this is the real start of like modern day vidum this is the end of what you would probably consider old school vidum and it it becomes what we now know pretty much from season 14 onwards, I would say. I will say I like the Black Exemption as a one-off. I don't think they need to keep trotting it out every single year. Like, you could go two, three years without using it and it would be fine. Yeah, it says all that Oregon didn't have a Black Exemption actually even enter the game because of the stupid placement of it. And nobody really noticed at the time. Oh, in the laser game at the amusement park? Yeah, the only place it appears is there's about three or four in that claw game in the later game. And it never enters the season, or even crosses anyone's mind. Nobody actually in the season acknowledges its existence in that claw game because nobody saw it. We only see it because it's in the B-roll at the start of the challenge. The other issue it's got is because you've got the black exemption, you've got to have a challenge for the black exemption, you've got to have exemptions, you've got to have loads and loads of jokers. And then, especially when you're combining it with like the, the... the uh, prize budget going down from you know twenty thousand a year down to I think eight or whatever it was this year. It's a good way to keep the budget down, but you also you really need a bigger prize if you're going to do it. Yeah, what I'll say about the black exemption this season is I like how they handle it because it isn't in a challenge necessarily. They don't hand it out in the challenge; they hand it out in another way, which actually kind of makes it more fun. Rather than just trying it out as a reward for a challenge, it actually is a reward for something else. In next week's episode, at least. I can't remember whether they do more than one, but it becomes a reward next week for something else other than a challenge. Yes, there's a second one. Oh, ignore what I said. The second one isn't nearly as fun. The first one's very fun. I like the first one. The first one's very fun. The second one is basically be in the right place at the right time. Like every other Black Exemption we've seen since, basically. So we begin with some beautiful shots of the Philippines and a man in a boat delivering letters to an island. The letters have the mole logo on them and people's names, and it does say a flavouring nine. But then we cut to 17 days earlier and Art saying that the mole looks for balance in the extremes. He says the mole will adapt and has to as the competition is fierce. Nine famous people from the Netherlands will try and earn money while competing against the mole, and they begin in the World City on one of the 236 islands that forms Hong Kong. He is, of course, on the one red junk that goes around Hong Kong Harbour, and there is literally just one boat that has the red sail. That's it. It's an actual tourist attraction just called the red junk. Money that they earn will enter the pot, and that pot will go to the person who answers the one question at the end of the season, who is the mole. Out of interest, Bindles, can you remember where Trust Nobody starts in the intro? You mean the first season they, they stuck it in? Yeah, because this is three seasons after Horace did the Trust Nobody. And we still don't have it, the family photo here. Oh. I know it was in the credits in El Salvador and Nicaragua because it was like the first time that had spoken word in there. And now they just sort of, you know, do all the shouting out all the time. I don't remember when they stuck when they brought it back. It's just something I noticed when watching this episode, and it's something we have discussed in previous episodes. I can't remember whether it was part of Japan or even before that. But I can't remember where Trust Nobody actually starts becoming a thing. And I don't think it's much later than this season. It's definitely there by Oregon. I think it's there in Sri Lanka as well, so it'll probably be next season. Yeah, I think it is either Sri Lanka or Dominican Republic. I can't remember which one actually introduces Trust Nobody as part of the family photo. 
So the episode title is Faint or Diversion, and it is day one in Hong Kong. And Mr. Tarstorian, do you recognize where they begin? Where they specifically enter? Was it from season 30? Uh, it was from Canada 2. It's also definitely been in some of the earlier American seasons. I can't remember whether it was in 30. Yeah, it's in Australia 1 as well. Oh, that's the place where they did the Zodiac thing that uh, the two... Nope. No? What? Oh, okay. Well, I'm swinging a miss. <laughs> What'd they do there? Well, it was, I think it was a clue box in Canada too. I definitely remember seeing a picture of Laura and Jackie there. It's the Kowloon Walled City, which is where they did the like the lion dancing or the Tai Chi or whatever it was in Australia 1. Yeah, it's Kowloon Walled City Park. I was about to say Canada 2 and Lauren and Jackie are such a long time ago. But that would have filmed the same year as this season. Or filming was 20, or uh, yeah, both both seasons aired in the same year. Yeah. Kowloon Walled City Park has been visited on a lot of amazing races anyway. And Art introduces the season to them and says the mole will want them out of the game one by one. They will play the game alone. If they win, they will do it alone. And if they leave, they will also leave alone. He tells them yokers and exemptions are a thing in this season, but also introduces them to the black exemption and tells them that playing the black exemption nullifies all yokers and exemptions played on that test. He also tells them to get ready for test and execution, which they're all pretty confused about. What's funny too is when he's telling the history about Hong Kong, you can tell that production doesn't know there's much of an international uh, online audience for Vidim yet, because he says, oh, it was a former British colony, and now there's 7 million Chinese people, and and they're all squeezed into the size of a town called Valuvi. And I'm thinking, what? where the hell is that? No one's heard of that outside of the Netherlands, I presume. I googled it. It's basically just like the biggest national park in the Netherlands. And of course, who is the first person that we hear speaking the entire season? It's someone who Logan's going to get very bored of me trumpeting, because it is Vidim Icon. Oh, and I'll warn you now, she is one of my favourite people ever to play Vidim. She's insane. She's a fucking delight. She brings the balance to Tico's presence. Oh yeah, she makes this season worth watching when you know that Tico is a thing. Because as much as I hate Tico, I really, really like Arf. Tico never likes to stick with a consistent hair length because I watched that preseason thing, completely bald there. Here he's trying to go for some sort of rock star hair. And then when he comes back for an Asans, he has he has much longer hair. He he's always he's always switching things up. That's the first time someone's ever accused Tigo of caring about his appearance. Very true. The elephant in the room is, of course, if you've heard of it in Renaissance podcast, you'll know that I really don't like Tico in this season. He's the one roadblock to me actually enjoying this season, I think. So you'll hear a lot of me hating on Tico, but also it will balance out by there being quite a lot of my love for Arf, because she is, she basically sets up the very fun, older woman, absolutely insane archetype that I know and love in Vidim. I have a question about that. Um... Who do you think is the oldest person in this cast? Like, without looking. There's quite a lot of people very close in age in this cast. There's a lot of people in the late 40s, I think. Is it Owen? Uh, Owen's second oldest. Owen is second oldest, I would guess. Then Susan? Yep. Is it? Really? Yeah. Arf has, like, mid-50s energy. Arf is 39. Uh, Jesus Christ! (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she she's the fifth oldest person in this cast. What? <laughs> I didn't even write down Arf as being old. I had Susan as oh, because I always mix up people's appearances in the first episode or two of every Vidim season. And yeah, I had Susan labeled as as older amongst the women. I googled everyone just before recording. Um, so in twenty fourteen, Susan was forty nine. Owen was forty seven. Daphne was forty one. Tigo was 40, Arf was 39, Jan Willem was 37, Jennifer and Sophie were 34, and then Freak and Maurice were 28. So the average age is 37.7. Yeah, I- I'm still kind of gobsmacked that Arf was in her late 30s when she filmed this show. I know. Because you do not associate her with being in her 30s. Ever. 
You know what they say: thirty-nine or forty is the is the new is the new fifty. So basically, when our film this season, she was less than ten years older than Logan is right now. So yeah, Arf is absolutely going to get a lot of attention from me because she's amazing in this season, even though she's far younger than you anticipate being. Yeah, she's one of your favorite one-off characters in Venom, Michael. Absolutely. Like, Arf sets up a run of her archetype of slightly batshit insane older women in a cast. And I'm talking like Cecile's, maybe even Ellie, although I probably wouldn't say that to Ellie's face because she'd absolutely kick my ass. I'm talking even being, I know she wasn't that old, but like an Emanuela is an older woman in that cast inexplicably. Arf walked so they could run. So Arf says that they've just got there, they don't even know each other's shoe size, but now they've already got to do a test. Jan Willem says that when you play Vistamol, you know nothing is what it seems, but you never expect to do a test without even playing one challenge. And then it is time for the test. Questions. Art specifically doesn't say how many questions, but just questions about the identity and actions of the mole. Whoever knows the least will go home, apart from the mole who can never go home. Sophie says she just wants to get it out of the way. It's like pulling a tooth or waxing your bikini line. You just have to do it quickly. She says that the mole is a man. Jan Willem says you can't know who the mole is, but he's trying to eliminate his options. He says the mole lives in Amsterdam and is Maurice. He was surprised by the test only being 10 questions, so he didn't spread as much as he wanted to. Jennifer says she knows nothing, and then there are only 10 questions. She says she was on one person too much. Frank says it's scary to go for one person so quickly. Daphne says it's Maurice. Maurice says it's Tico or Owen. Art says it's Jennifer or Sophie. Susan says she thought it was weird that Tico immediately understood what Art meant about preparing for test and execution. And Owen says that it was intense. You didn't do anything, and now you have to answer questions about people who you just don't know. Art describes the first test and execution as always intense, but more so this time when you have a long plane ride home and are already separated from the nine people who you have just met. Sophie, Owen, Susan and Tico all get green screens before Daphne gets the red one while wearing a red shirt. How do you feel about this twist? I really don't like this twist generally, because it just kind of subverts what we know. Although they do play it really funnily here, because they give her a eulogy before actually telling us that she's not going home yet. I was waiting for a montage. (laughs) I think it's interesting to do this as a one-off, and I'm glad they've not repeated it. There was one UK Big Brother season where they basically did an uh, eviction on the first night, and they did the eviction, got the guy out, did his interview, and then they basically did the highlights package, which was him going in, opening the thing that basically told him he was evicted, and then getting out, and that was it. That was the montage. (laughs) Yeah. They ended up bringing him back, though, didn't they? Later in the series. Which sort of spoiled the fun of it. I think I have a mutual Facebook friend with him. I'm sorry. So Daphne gets eulogised, even though they've only been together for two hours. However, Art congratulates her and says that she now knows more than the rest do. At the end of the episode, they will sit the remaining ten questions, and she has until then to turn her red screen green. This is a terrible twist because it rewards somebody for doing terrible on the on the opening quiz. It's like, you really sucked at the quiz, first thing. So we're going to hand you a massive advantage that might win you the game by the end of the season. I will also say when I was listing everyone in this cast, Daphne was the one person I'd forgotten. I remember everyone else in this cast, but could not remember Daphne for the life of me, even seeing a picture of her. It was only when we actually found out who she was at the uh, the test that I went, oh yeah, it's Daphne, isn't it? Forgot about her. I really wish they would have thrown in a montage, though, because for her, they could have had her... Uh, standing in front of Art, uh, explain the black exemption, her going to sit down in the chair for when she does the quiz, her getting out of the chair, and then her walking onto the chair for the execution, and then her reaction to being executed just a few seconds prior, and then Art could have told her the news. I wish they had gone that route. Yeah, we get the classic elimination style eulogies from uh, from everyone in confessional though which did make me laugh they play it completely straight to their credit so they then check into their hotel and freak describes them as a group of weirdos they have a travel guide in tico who is also the entertainment and he says he will need a few days to find his way i would like a refund if tico is my entertainment oh definitely he's like end of the peer entertainment he's basically a human zoltar machine well, I mean, the budget did start going down with with this season, right? 
And of course, he is the first person to get a proper intro. He is an actor who we will know from series and films, and we only know him from two things. One is, you know, losing Vidim Renaissance, and two is living under a bridge. And from the brief clips that we see, he does always seem to play a bit of a wrongan. Now, Logan, I did warn you at the end of Japan that there was a question coming. I don't know whether you remember what the question was, but did you spot the previous... Did you spot the Japan cameo in this episode? No. No, I did not. Hilariously, when I was chatting to Bindles about this yesterday, maybe the day before, it's actually a cameo that someone from this season makes in Japan, and the reverse happens in their intro in this episode. And that is Freak. Because he won the search for Joseph, which was hosted by Fritz Sissing. So in Fritz's clip, in his intro, you see him announcing Freak as winner, and in Freak's clip, you hear Fritz say the winner is Oh, I, ah, I didn't even catch on to that. I was just fixated on, who's Joseph? I don't think this ever made it to the US, but it was a run of Andrew Lloyd Webber-themed shows in the UK originally, and then went to the Netherlands, uh, looking for the main character of musicals. So the UK had How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria from The Sound of Music. We had uh, I'll Do Anything from Oliver. We also had uh, Any Dream Will Do, which was the Joseph one, which uh, got adapted in the Netherlands. I think the Netherlands have done about 10 of them now. They've done some that we didn't do. Oh, so the search for Joseph isn't just going around a theatre looking for some guy hiding in the makeup room or, or under one of the bleachers in the theatre. No, it is. Uh, it's the search for the lead for Joseph and his amazing technical dream coat. And um, I think the Netherlands still use the elimination song of Close Every Door. But yeah, we, we had about six or seven of those in sort of the mid-2000s. But Freik won the uh, the Dutch Joseph one. And he's 26 and a singer and actor, and he's been in Les Mis, Petticoat and Joseph, and now this season he's in Love Story. And the love story that he's in is with Off, who has quite the, quite the conversation with Freik here. She couldn't help but point out they're an interracial couple. And and then says she's going to give him a pill and go through his bag. So Off has just started to share a room with somebody and has already come up with a plan to roofie her roommate just so she can get some extra information for the next quiz. Standard mole strategy. Can I also point out, we've still not actually been introduced to Off properly yet. Our introduction to Off is her saying they don't even know each other's shoe size, then going to interracial couple, then going to, I'm going to roofie freak. That's the trajectory we've already had with Alf, and we still haven't properly met her. Imagine if she was in the last Belgian season and shared a room with Philippe. She'd just be saying, what? You're just babbling that you're the mole in your sleep? Why'd I waste money on roofie pills then, if you're just going to tell me now? So, yeah, at the front desk, they do divide up into rooms, and Freak and Arf have that conversation. She says that it worked out well for her, as he's on her list, and she can slip him a pill and look in his bag. She looked in his bag while he was having a shower, but she didn't find anything. Not that she was really expecting to find notes saying, I'm the mole, anywhere. This is still the introduction to Arf, that's what I mean. Like, even if you didn't know how much I love Arf, I think you probably would be able to tell just from how insane she is 10 minutes into this episode. So they meet Art in a market for the first real assignment, and he tells them to make five duos. Freke deliberately chose Daphne as she got the red screen, and it's a way to divert her and send her home. Art expects to meet them in half an hour at the police station. They can follow him, but if they do, they will earn no money. Each duo gets an envelope where they can find money, but all five duos have to be at the police station on time, or they earn absolutely nothing for the pot. To add to the fun, they're only allowed to ask for directions in Cantonese. What would happen if they all did just follow Art and say, eh, this challenge seems a bit tough. We'll just follow him to the police station. Would they have aired it? Almost certainly not. Unless, of course, Tico got to the front and was their travel guide. If he got his umbrella out and started guiding them there, then they would have aired it. And Maurice says they were dropped off in the projects of Hong Kong. I have never heard of there being any projects in Hong Kong. I winced at that purely because they've literally just come from Kowloon Walled City Park. And if you know anything about Kowloon Walled City, 
you'll know why that was a little bit insensitive. Kowloon Walled City, until until the early 90s, I think it was, was the closest you can get to the projects in uh, in Hong Kong. It was very much run by the triads. There were skyscrapers six inches apart from each other, and there was an insane population density there. It was basically just a slum. And um, unsurprisingly, this didn't particularly reflect well on those running Hong Kong at the time, so they, uh, I think it was Chris Patton as governor of Hong Kong, started a project to essentially raise Kowloon Wall City and uh, get the triads out and turn it into a park, which it now is. It's an insane story, the uh, the story of Kowloon Wall City. Um, but it was very interesting. As you might have guessed, I have been there. I've been to Kowloon Wall City Park. Thankfully not when it was just Kowloon Wall City. So, Maurice and Jan Willem have to find a Chinese wedding gift shop. Sophie and Arf have to try and find a dry cleaner. Susan and Jennifer have to find a seafood restaurant. Tiko and Owen have to find a cafe. And Freak and Daphne have to find a grocery store. Specific ones, of course, because that would be too easy. Yeah, it's too bad that Tigo, uh, Tigo's location wasn't to find a barbershop. That comes later in the season when he has to do the uh, the roulette wheel task. That's why it ends up that way. He just likes it. The annoying thing is Art went to the police station, but then like, like that entire block is just like seven police stations all around each other. Oh yeah, having been to that area of Hong Kong, it, it's an impossible challenge, this. There is no way anyone's making a decent amount of money in this challenge. Just out of interest, uh, Kowloon Walled City was uh, demolished in 1993. Wow. Oh, that's when the the Blue Jays won the World Series. Uh, In January 1987, the Hong Kong government announced plans to demolish the Walled City after an arduous eviction process and the transfer of de jure sovereignty of the enclave of China to Britain. Demolition began in March 1993 and was completed in April 94. But yeah, it's well worth looking into the story of Kowloon Walled City because it was very interesting when I was there. This is a hilarious first challenge, too, because uh, for Dutch people, I presume this is their first introduction to a completely tonal language. Yeah, and, and also the fact that they say Chinese in the episode, but they speak Cantonese in uh, in Hong Kong. So it's a specific variation of Chinese that they have to do correctly as well. And because it is obviously a former British colony, there's still a lot of people who will speak English as their first language in Hong Kong. Yeah, like the who, who was it that ran into the one major English speaking local? Off and Sophie. Yeah, when Sophie and Off run into that guy, and they uh, Sophie and Off essentially turn into a dog from one of those black and white American TV shows from the fifties or sixties, where all they can do is nod and and shake their head and be led where to go. You know the strategy: point, grunt, smile. <laughs> yeah, it's being a tourist anywhere in the world. That's just how it works. If you're allowed to speak, you have to speak loudly because they understand you much more if you speak loudly at them. Yeah. What? There's a there's a there's a problem at the local well? Oh wait, you mean a dry cleaner? So Jennifer is an actress and lists the shows that we won't know her from. <laughs> yeah, like how they all <laughs> list what where they're from. It's like, yeah, I haven't heard of that. I haven't heard of that. That's irrelevant. I think I might have been a bit pissed off when I was watching this episode, and I don't know why, because half of the people have just got the notes of, oh, we'll know them from this, but of course we don't, because we've never heard of these people before. I like, I, I can't remember specifically who it was, but they said, oh, I was in the movie Taped, as if that was a big accomplishment, or it won Oscars, or it won Best Picture at the Oscars. I think it was Susan. Yeah, Susan. Oh, yeah, yeah, she did say that, yeah. And she said, yeah, I was in Taped. Well, what the fuck is taped? Susan is actually one of the more famous people in the cast because she's in Dutch Desperate Housewives, or was, at the time, I think. Oh, is that why she was copying that thing from Basic Instinct in her intro? Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that uh, the, the Netherlands adapted Desperate Housewives and she was one of the main characters. Or, or it's something very similar, if, if it isn't that. And the worst offender for speaking loudly at locals was definitely Tigo. Tigo went, was somewhere between speaking loudly and just outright barking at the Cantonese-speaking population. I have to say, they were very generous not to penalise anyone for Tico saying to the police officer, can I ask you something? Yeah. They were super generous there, and I think it's probably just because they wanted to actually give them money to do the twist next week, but 
yeah, they were very, very generous with that because I'm not sure that I'm not sure as a producer I would have been that generous. I think they probably, if if Tigo had found his money, I think they probably wouldn't have awarded it. Yeah. Uh, so we get the introduction to Maurice as well, who's a TV presenter and presents a program for children that I've never heard of. He says he's a team player, but also wants to win. And unfortunately for him, by the end of this episode, neither of those are very useful to him. Sophie and Alf find a guy who wants to speak English to them, but they have to awkwardly say no. They pretty much play 21 questions with him, but he takes them to the dry cleaner. Sadly, no, not the right one. Just a dry cleaner. Somehow, Jennifer actually finds the right restaurant and grabs the hidden envelope. Then we get the introduction to Susan, who's basically in Dutch Desperate Housewives. Frank and Daphne choose to go to the police station so they're not late. Then we get Tico and Owen asking the police officer, and that's all for naught anyway. Frank and Daphne arrive with eight minutes to spare. And Daphne is a presenter and actress, and lately she's been hosting film festivals. Yet again, nothing that we have seen. Owen and Tico bump into Jennifer and Susan, and they all find the police station together. Arf and Sophie also arrive, leaving just Jan Willem and Maurice. They arrive with two minutes to spare, and say that Chinese is a useless language. Eh? I don't know about that. Yeah, given that it's essentially allowed you to travel for the past four or five years. Mm. Yeah, I would say it's pretty useful. Do you think that some of these comments would have aired had this episode aired now? A Dutch channel television? Yeah, I think it still would have aired just because it's the Netherlands. I- I'm not sure they would have called Chinese a useless language on air. I'm certainly not sure that Arf would have joked about roofing Freak in 2022. <laughs> However funny it was. I, th- I think it's Arf. No, she probably would have. Arf still would have said it. They just probably wouldn't have aired it. Yeah. So... Jennifer and Susan's envelope contains 400 euros, and Art splits up the notes amongst four people, which confuses the group further. They try and select a treasurer, but Sophie suggests that they all keep their own notes, and there is a wonderful no from the group before they elect Freak as treasurer. We get a flash of the postman again after this scene. They then have a coffee together, and the phone rings, and Art tells them a car is waiting for two of them outside, the two who like being in the spotlight. I love how they managed to find the smallest cafe in Hong Kong for these these 10 very tall Dutch people to sit in. Yeah, a lot of buildings in Hong Kong are small inside. I know I'm not exactly a small human being, but it was a little bit of a culture shock when I went to Hong Kong first, because I hadn't been to mainland China at that point, which was a massive culture shock. But it was a bit of a culture shock, basically being the tallest person anywhere, because I'm genuinely not used to all that sort of stuff. It's nothing on me being in the Forbidden City in in, uh, Beijing and people trying to take selfies with me because they'd never seen some of my hype. But there was a little bit of like culture shock and the buildings being a bit smaller than I'd anticipate in terms of width and height, all that sort of stuff when I was in Hong Kong. Both times, actually. So they quickly choose Tico and Frake, even though, as we well know, the only spotlight that Tico loves is the light that shines when he tries to leave his bridge. I've got to get the Tico homeless jokes out, because they're completely irrelevant this season, but they did make me laugh a lot in Renaissance. Yeah, when Tigo was in, in the pair, I don't know if, if Art was saying, oh, it's Freak and Tigo, or if he's saying, oh, ah, Freak and Tigo. Freak and Tigo is how I said it by the end of the season. The one thing that Logan knows about this season is where Tico places everything else. Logan knows nothing about, which is glorious. And we get an unusual shopping list where they have to buy some lights that can, I guess, shine about 1,500 meters. Yeah. Do you think they were specifically told they had to buy lights, or could they find laser pointers? I'd assume they would have received more specific instructions off screen. Yeah, because laser pointers is the obvious way to go here. Hong Kong is a city full of tech shops. I would have searched out a laser pointer if it was allowed. And then, you know, try and shine it in Tico's eyes from 1,500 metres away. Yeah, maybe they, were, maybe they were worried that Off would do something like that to blind one of her opponents so they can take down notes as well in their journals. And also just because she wants to incapacitate them so she can see if they've got any notes in their bags to say that they're the mole. That's true. So we get the introduction to Jan Willem, who's a radio presenter, and discusses Vidim on his show. And in fact, as we find out at the end of the episode, he actually does the exit interviews for Vidim. So Maurice would have had a wonderful experience getting to reunite with Jan Willem, 
who beat him in the season the day after this episode aired. And didn't you say that um, his co-host has also been on Venom, Bindles? Yep, uh, his co-host is Euron. Ah, that hmm. explains so much from the quality. Yeah. So do we have to blame this guy for bringing Euron into the Venom universe? Oh no, I think it always would have happened. I guess it's a small world there. As much as I really, really want to blame Jan Willem for uh, for your own being a thing, I don't think we can put all of the blame on him. I wonder why they decided to use a clip from three years earlier for Jan Willem. I mean, aside from, you know, laughing at his hairstyle. Because I think that's the first bit from El Salvador who's been interviewed in his clip. Could it just have been that they didn't want to acknowledge that your own is a thing? Possibly. I know I wouldn't want to. I know this was still three years before your own inexplicably got cast, but even then they just don't want to acknowledge that your own is a thing. They want to pull the ultimate switcheroo six years later. Although it's not like they're really opposed to having Venom contestants in those clips, because I think there's three of them this season. Because we've got Fritz in the Freak one, we've got Hannah here, and there's one coming up in Owen's clip as well. Yeah. On the subject of things that definitely wouldn't air now, Owen says it's hell anyway when a man and a woman go shopping together, but as a group of eight people, it's worse. I didn't even know that was a thing, that it's it's hell for a man and a woman to go shopping together. No, neither did I. But yeah, even eight years later, I don't think that would air anymore. I think they'd at least think twice about those comments airing. Jan Willem says that no light was good enough for the group. And then we get Owen's introduction, and he's a sketch comedian. He plays with hand puppets. He also plays with the form of Vidim contestant in that clip, Bindle thinks. We're one of the hand puppets on Vidim? Is that what we're going to be resorting to in the next couple of years? Because we've ran out of Dutch celebrities to be on Vidim? Yeah, they pulled a, uh, a mass singer and just put Kermit the Frog as uh, the first boot. That's what it was. <laughs> yeah, that woman who interrupts him in his clip, I think is Martina from the Sri Lanka season. Underneath all the wigs and everything. So eventually they find something they think will be good enough and are dropped next to the harbour in the evening in pairs. And most of them are really high up and get a beautiful view of the fragrant harbour itself. Yeah, and Willem compares it to Rotterdam. Yeah, there's a little bit of a difference between Rotterdam and Hong Kong. I know you had a little bit of a problem with one element of this challenge as well, Bindles. Yes, uh, so the, uh, the choice of places they've used pretty much makes this challenge even more impossible than it already is because two of those buildings are literally across the road from each other now one of them i at least get because phillips is a dutch company that's why we get so many close-ups of it but i don't know why they needed the second building this challenge is i would say one of the most impossible challenges in venom history it is absolutely impossible to earn any money in this challenge and they make it even harder with the placements of these groups and there's only a six-minute time limit to communicate with four different pairs. That you don't even know where they are, and you don't know, you don't know what they're shining. You, they had to find the torches themselves, so you don't even know whether they can see them. Oh, and also, we're going to do this after the nightly light show that they do Hong Kong Harbour. Oh, and did we mention that Hong Kong has millions and millions of people living there too? Oh, and they've got to communicate this a kilometre and a half away as well. Yeah, 1,500 metres away. And they don't know if it's a word or a message or a phrase or numbers or just spot this colour. They have no idea what it is they're supposed to communicate. So apart from that, it's an entirely possible challenge. (laughs) What? I can't believe you guys are idiots for not winning this 2,000 euros. So each pair gets an envelope saying to make themselves seen by the team on the other side of the harbour, as well as communicating something to them. We then get the introduction to the icon that is Arf, who's a columnist, an absolute icon, and is also occasionally on TV giving her opinion on things. For example, interracial couples, and roofing people, and whether it's morally right. I wonder what her opinion was on the whole Bill Cosby thing, then. I think Bindles is regretting his choice of coming on with us tonight. (laughs) I always regret coming on this podcast. When I say at the start of the episode that uh, we just wouldn't let you on Japan, it was more that you said, no, I know what you guys are like. I'm just going to be mortified constantly. 
the scary thing is that the most problematic moment of this season is still coming. Mm, I know. I can make all these jokes now because I'm not joking about that later. So Freak and Tico meet up with Art and are given a picture of the skyline. They have to identify in the space of six minutes where the other teams are and communicate a code to them in single digits, 3425, using a laser pointer that he gives them. And of course the six minutes takes place during a light show and Tico takes control because of course he does. So yeah, impossible challenge. They did get one number right though. Inexplicably, yes. They somehow do get one number of the four correct. But I think it's perfectly encapsulated by Arf, who says Hong Kong is very bright, and we have to look for small white lights, because that is what we bought. Yeah. They, oh yeah, because it's not even the same coloured light that Freak and Tico have. No, they don't even know whether they're looking for Freak and Tico, or whether they're looking for the other groups. That's the other thing. Yeah, and you can tell like they're going to see the pairs behind 1,500 metres of distance, too. No, all they're told is communicate something to another group. Yeah, so the other groups, they're, they're thinking they could be receiving a message from them and mix it up with whatever message Freakin' Tigo are sending them. And then we get our final introduction, which is Sophie, who's a TV presenter for the KRO. And when they all reunite, Art says that the assignment was clear. It was not. They had to make themselves known to Tigo and Freak and get a number back off the guys. They have to use the four digits to open the safe containing 2,000 euros. Arf and Jennifer saw seven, Jan Willem and Daphne saw four, Owen and Sophie saw zero, and Susan and Marie saw four, which of course is wrong, meaning they earn nothing of 2,000 euros for the challenge, and 400 euros of 4,000 for the episode. I would even just subtract the 2,000 euros as a possible, because you say it's 400 out of a possible 4,000, but uh, I, I can't, I don't think possible applies to the challenge we just saw. If I'm putting the 2,222 euros and 22 cents or whatever it was from Renaissance in the, in the canon, I have to put the 2,000 euros from this challenge there. You didn't put the half a million uh, euro, or was it six or seven million euros from the karaoke challenge? It was six million euros. <laughs> they did about as good as could be expected. Yeah. They, they got one. They nearly got two because Arf and Jennifer were in one of those buildings that were right next to each other. And I think their number... The seven, I guess, was like the three and the four. Oh, because they were so close together. Yeah, so they, 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 they basically saw both signals and thought it was all for them. But I'm, I'm still not even sure how you guess zero, because like, how do you even signal that in a challenge like this? Well, the person has the light on, and then you see where the person is, and they're holding up, uh, they're holding up the sign for zero. So Art says to them, beginnings are hard, but he'll see them tomorrow. Jan Willem and Daphne were the only ones to get their number correct, meaning that nothing Tico did was successful. Which is pretty representative of his Vidum career, really, isn't it? And on the quiz, everyone admits they're spreading on who they suspect. Yeah, we, we, we get a fun uh, Daphne and Jan Willem scene first. You can't skip over that. Oh yeah, I also had that note there, yes. So they wake up on day two. Daphne has a wake-up call with the first part of the test, so Jan Willem told her to play a little bit harder than she was. He doesn't suspect Daphne, so if he knows who she suspected, that person can be ruled out. She tells him she put most questions on Susan, but that might have been a lie. Then it is time for the second part of the test. Ten more questions about the identity and actions of the mole. Whoever knows least will actually go home this time, except for the mole who can never go home. Susan says that Daphne knows things. She spread a lot on the first bit of the test. Owen is continuing with the rest of his test, having put five questions on someone who he no longer thinks is suspicious. Sophie went fully on Owen and Susan last time, so she's not putting anything on either of them in part two. Maurice doesn't have a clear suspect. He has a group of suspects. Tico, Susan, Sophie, Owen, and Half. Daphne says everyone thinks she has an advantage, but she doesn't. She starts off on the back foot, knowing that she has to beat people to survive this test. Jan Willem is on four people. Maurice, Owen, Yennefer, and Half. Arf is choosing her mole based on who it isn't. Freak says that everyone is suspicious, but he suspects four people in particular, Tico, Sophie, Daphne, and Yennefer, more than the rest. Yennefer says that on day one it's not Arf or Tico. She wishes it was her, so she could just put everything on herself and be guaranteed to survive. And Tico says she split over three people, in his case, Owen, Yennefer, and Sophie. He's not afraid to go home, but he came here to stay for three weeks. Whether he's winner, loser, or runner-up, he just wants to do everything in the season. No comment. Art says that most people already know what it's like to get one of their screens, but whether it's easier is unclear. This time a red screen will not save them from going home. 
Daphne's name is the first one types in, and it's a green screen for her, meaning one of the other nine is going home instead. Frake, Yennefer, and Arf all get their first screens, all of which are green, before Maurice is the first one to go home. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't say, out of interest, Logan, before this test happened, who did you think was the mole? I believe the suspect list I sent you right before the execution had Maurice as my number one suspect. Well done. I have to gloat because, obviously, you don't tend to get things wrong very often on these historians' podcasts, whether you've seen the season or not. I would hope if I've seen them before I get it right. (laughs) I mean, some moods I'm not sure with you, but but it was nice to see you do a little bit of a fuck-up here and put Maurice's number one. Not that I'm competitive. No, no, you would never be competitive. No, I I wouldn't shank my friends just to win a hypothetical £60,000. And everyone properly mourns Maurice. They say, oh, Maurice was a super fan. He wrote everything down. How was he first out? He seems ultra bummed out about it. We're bummed out for him. And then Maurice even tells Art, oh, this is unbelievable. I thought I really did spread enough on the quiz. I really wanted to keep playing. And then we cut to Tigo. And then Tigo was telling the rest of the group, oh, Maurice had all these theories, and those theories work against you in Vidim. And I'm thinking, uh, Tigo, I think it's more that this is the one season where everyone in the cast decided to spread on the quiz. And because of that, someone just has to go home in a group of ten people. You know how I came into Renaissance saying, Tico's back and I hate him? It's behaviour like this. Because Tico absolutely kicked Maurice when he was down there. And it's completely unnecessary. He was just being a prick. Yeah, you're saying, yeah, Maurice is just an idiot when it comes to Vidim. Why would you ever do what he did? He had a, he, I've got it figured out. He doesn't have it figured out. I'm thinking, Tigo, just wait at least a few hours to say something that's just blatantly wrong. It's a bit of a heel turn when you have this big emotional scene of everyone being really upset for Maurice, even though they've only been together for two days. Everyone's devastated for him. He's distraught. He's really upset. He's kind of Jessica from South Africa levels of upset. And then you have Tico just kind of barging in, being a complete prick about it, being like, yeah, his strategy was wrong, wasn't it? I don't care. Fuck that guy. Yeah, Maurice couldn't figure out who the mole was in a group of nine. Tigo couldn't figure out who the mole was in a group of two other people. I can't actually remember when Tico goes home, whether uh, whether he is on the right mole or not. Can you remember, Vindles? Not off the top of my head. I don't think he was. I think he actually said in Renaissance that he was completely wrong when he went home, which is hilarious. Because, you know, he was completely wrong in Renaissance as well. So Maurice says that he split sufficiently and really wanted to continue in the game. He's terribly disappointed. And as I said earlier, hilariously, he now gets to be interviewed on Jan Willem's radio show the next day. So, next time, a night at the opera is rather loud. They find out the meaning of art distributing the notes to them. The traditional abandoned building game is a little bit chaotic and the Black Exemption is introduced in a market. This first episode, it's really tough to isolate any potential sabotages. Because the Cantonese challenge was was really chaotic and very difficult. And the second challenge wasn't just difficult, it was downright impossible. The mold doesn't have to really intervene to keep money out of the pot here. Yeah, I don't think, even if you had seen this episode and we were going to do a What Did the Mole Do uh, segment, I don't think we'd have much to talk about. I don't think the mole needed to do much. No, and both of the challenges, they were in pairs as well, so even if you did something, nobody would have seen it. Yeah, from next episode onwards, maybe the mole has to do a little bit more, but this episode, not so much. Yeah, because I was thinking for the second game, I mean, they didn't really have to... All they had to do was not notice where the laser was or be the one in control of the laser. And maybe for the first challenge, intentionally mess up the pronunciation, which a regular person would do anyway when communicating with with locals in a language you've never spoken a day before in your life. So now the big question, Logan, who did you suspect? So as I said, uh, should I just go through my order? Yeah, go through your order. All right, Maurice, who's now gone, then Jennifer, then Jan Willem, then Freak, then Sophie, then Off, then Susan, then Owen, and then Daphne. And then Tico, because you know it's not him. 
I mean, as much as we're running a spoiler-free operation on this season, we can say Tico is not the mole because he came back for Renaissance. No way. <laughs> this is brand new information. So, my suspicions, and I'm going to remove most of these names because I'm just going to list everyone's names, were Alf, Susan, and Daphne. Did you ever have Tigo as your number one suspect at any point during the season? I did not. Spoilers. <laughs> the best thing about this is, as we're recording, Logan's not going to find out who my suspects were because, you know, it'll lead the witness a little bit. But um, as soon as things start going out, he will see on social media who I suspected each week and will actually go through all my suspicions in episode nine. And, uh, and we'll see how close you actually were to my suspicions. Have you guys got anything else you want to say about this episode? No. Although I do think it's sort of funny while we're eulogizing Morris. Who? Exactly. I don't want to bury the lead, but the editors already did it. I mean, I remembered Maurice because I remembered his reaction to going home. Could I pick him out of a crowd of hundreds of Vidim contestants? Probably not. I've spent the last hour just in my head just being saying, don't say Vincent, don't say Vincent, don't say Vincent. (laughs) Oh, Jesus Christ. (laughs) And what better note to end the episode on. Thank you for listening to our... Oh, my God. You're welcome. I, actually have, I have one final note, actually, which is, given that we just come off the back of Japan, Aryan is back to do Mole Talk. And I think he Ooh. did it for he did it for about three or four seasons, I think. This may have been his last one. It may have been one more. But he did Mole Talk for a while till he became Dutch John Oliver. Hmm. So, thank you for listening to our VS to Mole 2014 recap. We'll be back next week to continue the hunt for an old mole in Hong Kong and the Philippines. Don't forget you can contact us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram where we are TV Warriors, or you can email us and contact at rtvwarriors.com. Logan's on Twitter at Logsipuaki, Bindles is the Rim Recapper, and I'm MJ Harmstone. Thank you as always to Marika for the subtitles. We'll see you next week. Peace out. Damn it, I can't do it right this All I could hear when I was doing the outro was just you <laughs> giggling in the background. Because yeah. <laughs> I had the same note of, of don't, don't, don't make that mistake of saying Vincent. You're still thinking of Vincent. That's all that's making you laugh here. Yeah. Peace out and just chill till the next of flavoring. Oi. For the record, all of that is staying in. We kunnen toch ook voor alle vier ons eigen brief nemen.